Open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 10 and 11. We're going to read chapter from chapter 11, 1 through 9 for uh, prior to the sermon. And then uh, we will, I, I'll go, I'm going to refer to and read just sections of chapter 10 uh, as we go. Um, so uh, Genesis chapter 11. Verses 1 through 9. Let's prepare ourselves for the reading of God's holy word. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Then they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of God. Well, this morning, we're going to be taking chapter 10 along with this first section of chapter 11 because, well, really, they go together. Uh, They fit together themselves, and these chapters after the flood incident really uh, pave the way for uh, the and prepare for the call of Abraham, uh, Abram in chapter 12. And so we're going to just talk through some uh, main ideas of chapter 10 and then look at this uh, story of the tower in chapter 11. In chapter 10, we have nations. And uh, the the... Chapter 10 then uh, traces very broadly and extensively the spreading out and filling the earth by Noah's sons, uh, seemingly, outwardly at least, uh, conforming to uh, God's intention and command from the beginning that humanity would uh, multiply, increase in number, be fruitful, fill the earth uh, as his image bearers, and so uh, fill the earth with those who bear the, the image of God and reflect the creator. The command which was given at the beginning uh, of humanity and creation and then reaffirmed and given again after the flood at the beginnings of the new humanity and creation. And, um, you know, when we, uh, if you scan through chapter 10, it uh, sort of has appearances of uh, genealogy and it is to some degree that, but not strictly so. Uh, in fact, uh, some of the na- it contains different types of information and categorizes people in various ways. Some names, uh, 
given our personal names. Others are geographical or tribal or political names rather than personal names, and some probably are both of those things uh, together. And this chapter then is often referred to as the table of nations. And really, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, a far-reaching map of the ancient geopolitical world into which people uh, are in the chapter classified by many different elements such as uh, genealogical descent and ethnicity, uh, politics, geography, language, and religion. Uh, and uh, we're told just as much that, and then in the conclusion of each son of Noah that um, the sons of Japheth in uh, Verse 5, the conclu- the, the, these sons had the least interaction with God's people in the Old Testament, who, um, and so least attention is given to them. And verse 5, the conclusion of what we're told about them is they spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. And these will be repeated ideas, uh, a repeated refrain, conclusion throughout and uh, so we see that again with the descendants of Ham who uh, figure significantly into the biblical story and include some of Israel's uh, most bitter enemies. Uh, and uh, likewise, in verse 20 then, we see the conclusion, the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. Uh, and then third, the sons of Shem from whom the Israelites We'll come, we'll see, uh, in verse 31, it's concluded by the statement, these are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages and their territories and nations. And then the conclusion of the whole chapter, uh, verse 32, these are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. And, um, and so these terms then that describe how these peoples are organized or uh, grouped together, those become important uh, repeated terms. Some of them are repeated terms in the call to Abram. And so it's presenting then Abram as, the, the, as we'll see as the hope for these nations uh, and while, you know, many of these people groups can be identified, there's much in the chapter that is uncertain. But despite that, there's one, we're just going to take it very big picture here, there's one central and clear theological point, uh, which the chapter is bookended by, verse 1, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons. And at the beginning of the chapter and at the end of the chapter, these are the clans of Noah's sons. All these people, all these nations, all these uh, people groups, all these uh, languages, in all the different places that they are, they may look different, they may sound different, they may live different, act, think different, they may live in different places, but they're all, what the, what, what the chapter's book ended by is that they're all sons and daughters of Noah and his wife. And so all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And so all created in God's image 
And so all image bearers of God, equally valuable and fully worthy of all the dignity and respect of an image bearer, and the theological point is this, that the human family is one family. Despite their present diversity and differences of natural, of, of uh, ancestry, language, geography, political groupings, the human family is one family. And so, I think someone once put it this way, love your neighbor as yourself. The human family is one family, and so love your neighbor as yourself. It's the second great commandment according to our Lord, and part of the basis for that is that our neighbor is, in some sense, our brother, our sister, part of the broader human family, fellow image bearer of God. And while the New Testament certainly talks about brotherhood and sisterhood in a particular way in terms of the spiritual family of God and our particular obligation to love our spiritual brothers and sisters and family in Christ, that doesn't deny or remove the reality that there is one broader human family who are our neighbors, who are created in the image of God, who we are called to love. That includes our neighbors who look different, who talk different, who live different. And it should be obvious then, uh, if the human family is one family, if we're called to love our neighbor as ourself, well, I guess there's many ways we can apply this, uh, but I think in particular it should be obvious that the sin of racism Viewing or treating someone as superior or inferior to others because of those ethnicity or those outward differences like language or other differences is a denial of this reality that we're all one human family. And that in some sense, we have, we have the same blood in our veins, and we are all made in the same image of the only, one and only true and living God. There's one human family. That's the first broad, uh, clear theological purpose and point of this chapter. The second is this, that there is one God over all nations everywhere. There is one God over all nations everywhere. God is not just the God of one people in one place, but of all people in all places, even if he is not recognized as such by them. He is still the one true and living God, the only God whom they owe all their worship and obedience. And he is still sovereign over them. As I, I said, as, as far-reaching as this table is, the table of nations is, as diverse and spread out as these people are, God is a God over all of them, and God is sovereign over all of it. He's sovereign over the outworkings of all that happens in this world, in every place, among every people group, person, <laughs> And nation. None of it takes him by surprise, and none of it can thwart his plans or oppose his purposes successfully. 
He's sovereign over it all. And Deuteronomy 32.8 alludes to what this table of nations pictures. Reads this, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. He's sovereign over all of these nations. And so does Acts 17.26. From one man, God made all the nations. From one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He's sovereign over all of it. God did this, Acts 17 continues, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And so this ver- chapter in Acts ex- uh, goes a step even further. God is sovereign over all these nations, and God has concern for all these nations. As wide as this and far as this geographical spread of these people groups is, and as diverse as the, the people groups are described as wide, as diverse as they are. They're all included because they're all within the scope and sight of the one true and living God who's the God over all people and places, the God who created every place and every person. There is no person, even in the furthest place, who is outside of the concern and mind and heart of God. And as we'll see, particularly as in chapter 12, God's desire to bless reaches even them. God's desire to bring the blessing of his gracious reign and salvation to all the ends of the earth. And really, that, that's our hope. Because we are outsiders who have been brought in. Uh, We are those who were far off, who have been brought near to God by this gracious offer of the gospel to go to the furthest ends of the earth to all nations. And knowing that reality, then, ought to give us hearts like God's heart that has the desire of the nations in our minds and hearts, that has the concern for all peoples everywhere, far away as they are, different as they may be, all peoples everywhere has the concern of them in our minds and hearts and desires and prays for and does whatever else we can to see the gospel proclaimed far and wide. As far-reaching as the geographical spread, no nation is beyond the scope or sight or reach or realm of God's concern. And no nation is outside the reach of God's desire to bless and save. And as I said, that's where these chapters really point us to, pave the way for, prepare us for, is God's call to Abram, which we'll look at uh, next time, um, where God chooses one nation to be the source of blessing for all nations. And in fact, uh, this table of nations, there's uh, 70 nations, no doubt a symbolic number, which was meant to uh, 
uh, symbolize wholeness, completeness, the whole world. And we'll learn at the end of Genesis that the sons of Jacob, Abraham's descendants who went down to Egypt, numbered 70. And that number links God's nation to all nations, showing from the very beginning God's desire to bless all nations through his one nation and to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And that's ultimately fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ who was the true Israel and the fulfillment of all God's promises, the one who brought God's salvation to this world and brings the hope of the gospel to all people, Jew and Gentile, to bring a divided humanity into one new family of God by his grace. There's one human family, there's one God over all nations, and uh, finally, what we see uh, in these chapters is humanity is divided because of their sin and God's judgment against it, but through the gospel, God is bringing together people from all nations into one new humanity, united again through Jesus. In the Tower story, we see the reason for the scattering and, uh, and diversifying of language of the, the nations. Probably this story is dischronologized, dischronologized out of order, and uh, meant to be understood as the cause of what has resulted in the end picture of chapter 10, uh, especially since uh, the, there are two brief biologic, biographical sketches that interrupt the, the patterns of the, the, um, the uh, genealogies in chapter 10, which point to the Tower story. And so that's found in verse 25 with uh, Peleg, two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. It's most likely that this division that's referenced is a reference to the scattering and confusing uh, that occurs at the Tower incident. And then Nimrod, verses 8 through 12, Nimrod, who is uh, portrayed negatively, he's described as building cities uh, similar to Cain, uh, and cities including Assyria and Babylon, both of which come into play significantly in Israel's, uh, in the life of Israel's as a nation. And Babylon, then, is the site of the tower building project in the Tower of Babel. And he's described as a mighty warrior on the earth, a mighty hunter before the Lord, of whom it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And that, may not, that might not sound so bad to us. In fact, it may sound uh, complimentary, but it's most certainly uh, portraying him in a negative light. And if you remember, it looks back to something earlier in Genesis in chapter 6 where the Nephilim were described as, um, as with that same word, uh, heroes of old, warriors, mighty warriors. And in that context, that was an indictment of them, uh, those contributing to the violence that was described as filling the earth at that time. And so Nimrod is presented in the same light as someone who uses his strength and power 
and violence for self-serving gain and advancement and accruing at the expense of others. Perhaps an ideal for other kingships, kings and rulers according to the world around them, but not according to the values of God's kingdom. But also in chapter 6, those Nephilim were described as uh, men of renown, uh, people who had a name, a reputation. Uh, just like Nimrod, who has this proverb about his mighty strength and, and, uh, and, and skills, and just like the aim of the people at Babel that we see in chapter 11, who are seeking renown who are seeking to make a name for themselves. So this then brings uh, those two biographical sketches point to the tower, and the tower is then explained as, as an explanation of the final picture of this spread and diversity of nations that we see in chapter 10. And that brings us to the tower in which we see now, that humanity spreading out and filling the earth wasn't a result of their uh, willing obedience to God's command, fulfilling that call to fill the earth with his image bearers for his glory. But rather, it was God's judgment against them for their sin of uniting themselves against God and seeking their own glory instead. And you see, they had unity. They're described as, you know, verse 1, the whole world had one language and a common speech, and there's other language that refers to their unity in the passage. And they work together. We see them described as working together with a united spirit for one common goal. They had unity, <laughs> but not a commendable kind of unity. It was a sinful unity in which was united around rebelling against God and exalting themselves. Verse 2, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And this describes the building of an ancient tower, temple structures in those, in, in those regions and describes the, the way they, they, the actual way they would build those structures. But it pictures people who are united in rebelling against God in seeking to make a name for themselves, seeking security for themselves outside of God, and seeking to exalt themselves instead of God, and seeking to cross the, the boundary from earth to heaven, essentially to, to dethrone God and set themselves up as their own gods. And it, it, in, in, I think it's, it is meant to remind us of the garden, of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, who in their pride sought to be their own gods, sought to live in rebellious independence from God, to find life and security outside of God by setting themselves up as their own gods and exalting themselves instead of God. And God made us to find life and security and uh, 
and, and joy and peace in submitting to him and obeying him and exalting him. God made us to delight in lifting up his name for he is great and he is worthy but in our sin we seek to exalt our names. We seek to uh, build and protect our reputation. We seek to find security in life by building our own little kingdoms and we try to find life by living for self as our own king's But it doesn't lead to joy, but misery and slavery. Joy, life, true security and freedom come when we stop trying to be our own gods, stop trying to build our own little kingdoms, but instead exalt the one true God and live for his kingdom. In verse 4, then we see that their pride is motivated on the one hand by selfish ambition, desire to make a name for themselves, exalt themselves. And on the other hand, fear. That underneath their pride is this fear of insignificance and insecurity. They say, let's do this because otherwise we'll be scattered over the face of the earth. And so in their fear, they are seeking security. Security not found in God, but in themselves and their efforts, which turns out to offer them no security at all. And so this is a picture then of sinful humanity, humanity in rebellion against God, human, humanity seeking independence from God, human arrogance before God, and human self-exaltation instead of God. And the city may, to them, certainly have the appearance of grandeur and strength and stability and security and permanence and greatness, but things aren't always what they appear to be from our perspective. What's God's response to this? What's God's perspective on this? You know, humanity is pulling themselves together and and, and amassing all their efforts and strength in opposing God. What's God's response? Verse 5, which is the literary center point of the story, and couldn't be, it would be hard to pack more irony and sarcasm into the statement here. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. From their perspective, they're building this huge, massive tower all the way to heaven, right? (laughs) From their perspective, it's ambitious, it's impressive, it's significant, it's quite an achievement, it's something to boast in. All the way to heaven, what's God's perspective? From all their monumental efforts, from their perspective, God is puny and insignificant to God. He's got to come down to even see what's going on down there. It's meant to be an ironic, sarcastic statement to sum up what God thinks of human pride and arrogance, and that ought to be. Is that not enough to, to, to get us to sort of stop in our tracks and examine ourselves and our hearts for pride and arrogance before God? What a contrast between how we see things and how God sees things. Let's not forget that many things that we think are very impressive and significant and provide much security that we might be tempted to live for are really 
very small, insignificant, empty, and fleeting. And let's not make that mistake and let's seek to see things from God's perspective. And when we see his grandeur and his impressiveness, his greatness, thoughts of our own ought to just be banished from our minds and hearts. We ought to be humbled before him. God comes down to see what's going on down there. <laughs> and, and of course, it's not that God is ignorant, doesn't know. It's, but of course, you know, it's meant to show God's perspective on the matter. And then God scatters them and God confuses them. God is opposed to human pride and arrogance. It's an offense to him as humanity's creator and king. And in fact, it's laughable to him as the all-powerful, infinite, eternal, and sovereign God. And this story is reminiscent of Psalm 2, in which all the nations are sort of banding together and amassing their strength and efforts to rebel against God and his chosen king. And what's God's response is he laughs at it. He laughs at their efforts because he's God. And all their efforts at opposing him are futile and pointless. And they ought to then, the psalm goes on, if, they've, if they're wise, if they've got some whiz, a little bit of wisdom in their heads, they ought to quickly bow down before him in their, in their hearts and submit their lives to him in worship and obedience. In verse 6, God concludes that they can't continue in this sinful unity. Certainly God isn't threatened by them. Uh, he, says, you know, he says, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, and nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Certainly God isn't threatened by them, but similar with past judgments in Genesis, God is concerned for the consequences in his world and upon his image bearers, humanity, if sinful humanity were to continue unchecked and unrestrained in their sin. And so God does something to check and restrain them, to oppose them, and he de-unifies them. They've uh, united sinfully in, in, in their rebellion against God, and he de-unifies them. He scatters them, and he puts obstacles in the way of their sinful cooperation by the confusing of their language. The language and communication are pretty significant obstacles in this world and in this life. Maybe you've experienced this kind of thing at one time or another, and maybe now in our day and age been, you know, particularly glad for Google Translate, which can help, you know, hurdle some of those obstacles. I remember in college learning Spanish and being very excited to test out my new Spanish skills with a Spanish-speaking person only to be looked at with faces of utter confusion and laughter. <laughs> and you can just imagine, you know, uh, that the obstacle that this is describing. And even when you speak the same language, right, communication can be difficult. Have you experienced this? Uh, it can be an obstacle to uh, our unity, Sometimes you need to work hard at being clear and listening carefully, and even still, there can be much misunderstanding. And so, 
how much more so is communication hindered in this situation where their languages are confused. And that's why it was called then uh, Babel. That, that's sort of a, an insulting <laughs> word heaped upon their efforts because it sounds like the Hebrew word for confused. Uh, and again, the more irony, they sought to make a name for themselves. I don't think confused is what they were going for there, right? Uh, they sought to make a great name for themselves, and the name they get in the story here is confused. Uh, and so humanity then is divided because of sin and judgment. But as we already considered, through the gospel, God is bringing together people from all nations into one new humanity, united again through Jesus. And that's what the whole Bible, uh, the, the whole Old Testament works up to, points to, prepares the way for that, for Jesus the Savior, who would bring salvation that would be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And in fact, we see in the very beginnings of the life of the church, we see the reversal of what happened in Genesis chapter 11 on Pentecost, right? What happens on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes down upon the apostles and enables them to proclaim the gospel in all the different languages. There's a, a Jewish people gathered in Jerusalem from all different nations and they're enabled to speak in all those languages so that those people can hear the gospel in their very own language through the preaching of the apostles. You know, just as a, a I guess it's not really a side note, but isn't it a privilege and a blessing and a, <laughs> to be able to hear the gospel in our very own language, to be able to read the Bible in our very own language? Let's not take that for granted because not everybody in this world has that possibility, right? And so it's a, an inestimable blessing. Uh, anyway, at, at Pentecost, people are enabled by the Spirit to overcome the barrier of communication, to hear the gospel in their own language. See, you see how it's a reversal at Babel, God put obstacles of language in the way to prevent humanity from building their own kingdom and seeking their own glory. But at Pentecost, God removes the obstacles of language so that the gospel can go forth to build God's kingdom and spread his glory. So God enables the church to fulfill the mission that he had from the very beginning to bring his blessings of salvation to all nations. And the diverse human family again becomes one people, the one people of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The judgment of Babel against human rebellion is reversed and the gospel brings God's blessing for human redemption. 
It's a reversal, but it's not an exact reversal, right? Because it's a reversal of the confusion and division resulting from different languages, but it's not a return to one common language. It doesn't wipe out or erase the differences and diversities of different people, but it enables them to have a a godly unity through the Spirit of God in the midst of vast differences and diversities. And this is the fulfillment of what all the Old Testament anticipated, whereby the gospel and by the Spirit of God, God's ultimate intention to build his church from peoples across the whole world, from every nation, as the song of worship unto the Lamb, our Savior, in Revelation chapter 5, says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nations. Those should sound familiar from chapter 10. It goes on, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel We thank you for your gracious work of redemption that brings us from all nations into one family of God. Help us to live out the realities of that unity that we have through Christ. And help us to rejoice in Christ our Savior And help us to do what we can to desire and pray for and work towards the proclamation of the gospel to all peoples everywhere. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.